Good morning, again. Uh, I, I think a lot of you know that I went to a small Christian liberal arts university in the middle of nowhere in Indiana uh, in a town called Upland, a school called Taylor. And if I know some of you went to small Christian schools as well, and I'm assuming that you, like me, heard a lot about intentional community at your school. Maybe you heard it elsewhere, too. It doesn't just have to be at small Christian colleges. Hopefully we talk about that in other places, too. But uh, this, this idea of intentional community, purposeful relationships, and, and then the structures that were created in these schools to, to help foster that, right? And I was a, a great beneficiary of uh, a lot of structure that the school provided to encourage these kinds of relationships. Uh, I, I was thinking like the, the opposite of intentional community, I guess, would just be accidental community. I'm not sure what that looks like other than you're just bumping into people. But uh, intentional community was this sense of uh, purposefulness in the relationships so that the relationships were deeper, that there was a sense of, of spiritual depth to the relationships that you were developing. Um, and in college, there was a lot of structure to help that to happen. Uh, so much so that uh, I got really close with a couple of friends, and, and two of us and myself decided, you know, we want to do this after college. Why does this have to end when we graduate and leave? And so three of us decided we're going to move to Seattle, and we're going to do life together really well, intentionally, with, with purpose. And in fact, uh, I, when we decided to move to Seattle, I looked and I got an internship at University Presbyterian Church, and I discovered that they had a program called Intentional Community. And I was like, Sign us up. So we did. We signed up for this program that was designed to help, again, kind of provide some of these structures to uh, create intentional community. And then a month before I moved out here, my two friends sat me down and they said, Mark, we've taken internships in Australia. <laughs> and I was like, you guys were my ride. <laughs> so I had a month to scrounge together a ride, ship my things out here. And that first year in Seattle looked a lot different than I thought it was going that structure, that um, kind of built-in community that I thought was going to be there was absent. And, uh, and I, I know that many of you have experienced this as well, where you had that kind of close-knit community in college, and then you move here, or you, you move that, that first move out of college, and you realize those structures aren't in place to foster that kind of intentional community. And so hopefully, what happens, and I think what slowly happened for me, is you realize, oh, I. I have to be responsible for creating some of that structure in order to have the same depth of relationships that I have with people. And it takes a lot longer, right? So it's not impossible, but it just takes a little more intention on your own part rather than that structure being handed to you. So as Drew mentioned, we're going to look at uh, a couple of kings towards the end of the book of 2 Kings today. And uh, I think one of the things that stood out to me as I've been studying them is, is the level of intention that these kings took to create structures that pointed them and their people back to God. Uh, that these were not, actually we'll see what happens when those uh, intentions and those structures aren't there. There's a third king in the middle that we're going to look at as well. Um, so keep that idea of intention and purpose in mind as we read these stories. All right, this summer we're looking at some different Old Testament characters uh, as we look at some of the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, that spurs us on in our race, in our, our walk of faith. And we're going to look at the end of 2 Kings. Here's uh, just a super quick background to where we're at. 
Saul and David and Solomon were sort of the three pinnacle kings of Israel, and their kingdoms are sort of what the rest of the Old Testament looks back to as, oh, those were the glory days. Now, if you've read the story of Saul and David and Solomon, you know these are not, uh, these are extraordinary men in some ways. They're also very, very deeply flawed and deeply broken, right? We keep hammering that home. It's not that the cloud of witnesses is so amazing that helps us, but it's who the cloud of witnesses points us to that actually helps us. So Saul, David, Solomon, the glory days. Then after that, the kingdom splits. And in the north, you have Israel. And in the south, you have Judah. And there's this whole list of kings that comes and reigns for, you know, short amount of time, long amount of time, whatever. And in the book of First and Second Kings, the author here uh, gives us a quick summary of each king right when we meet them. And they'll say something like, you know, King Ahab came to power and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Or he did good in the eyes of the Lord and he led his people in faithful worship of God. And by and large, all of the kings, save just a couple, get really negative reviews. They're just, it's bad king after bad king after bad king. And so uh, we get to Hezekiah. So if you wanted to open your Bibles, we're going to be kind of bouncing around in 2 Kings 18 to 23. I'm going to summarize some parts of it and read other parts. But that's where we are going to be. So we get to King Hezekiah. Uh, This is, yes, that's enough. I think that's enough background. (laughs) In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, who was the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, so this is the southern kingdom, He began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Here's here's the assessment of uh, King Hezekiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places and smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. So those are all references to places where people would worship gods other than the one true God, right? These were uh, gods that their neighbors had worshipped. And in fact, the high places in the Asherah poles gives us a clue that uh, some of these places were, there was temple prostitution that was happening. So this is clearly something very far afield from what God had imagined his people being up to and who he called his people to worship. He smashed these places down, tore them to bits. And in fact, he also broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made, For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. So this is the first king that we're going to look at, King Hezekiah. And he comes after a long stretch of kings who were not doing so well who were not held in high esteem by the author of 2 Kings. And Hezekiah, uh, he reminds this author of David. He's like, this this is a guy after David, right? He was a a man after God's own heart, and he restored proper worship in the temple. And part of how he did that was by removing all of the other uh, areas of worship of all the other gods. He smashed them down. and his legacy, as he goes on, he faces, uh, he faces the threat of, of other nations coming and, and wanting to take over the kingdom. And consistently, Hezekiah is one who puts his trust 
in the Lord. This is a character trait that he has that he expresses time and time again. There's an interesting thing in here uh, that, I, that I read about smashing the bronze snake that Moses had created. And this is a reminder of a, a thing that happened in the Exodus. Israelites are they're leaving, they're grumbling, and um, they get bitten by the snake. And God tells Moses to make this. This is something that, that God instructs Moses, make this snake on, um, on a pole and hold it up. And anyone that looks at it will be healed. It's, it's kind of a crazy story that we don't have time to, to get into the details of here. But what's fascinating, and this is just for free, um, is that the American Medical Association still uses that symbol as their logo. Uh, if you look at the, the AMA's website and all their publications, it's, it's kind of an abstracted version of it now. But you'll see it's a snake around a pole as this symbol of healing that comes from this fantastic story in Exodus of God healing his people. And yet, Hezekiah crushes it and burns it to the ground because it's become an idol. It's become something that people were worshiping rather than the thing that was intended to point people towards God. So even these good things that God had instructed Moses to create for his people, it had become something other than what it was intended for. It had become an ultimate thing, an idol. So Hezekiah breaks it down. Okay. Hezekiah's son... Manasseh is the middle king that we're looking at and is a sharp contrast to the two other kings. Here is the description of Manasseh. This is Hezekiah's son. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations of the Lord, the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal. He made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts, and he worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And in the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all of the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Manasseh strikes me as someone who is desperate. Do you catch that sense as the author lists off all of these things that he turns to to worship? All of these different gods and different idols and different temples that he's like, just bring them all in, let's try them all. He's just desperate to find anything that works. And the, the irony, the painful irony, is that he doesn't turn to the one who could actually give him life and fulfill that longing and that ache. He turns to everything else. And it leads to incredible bloodshed across the nation and um, ultimately... It's uh, Manasseh's evil that kind of drives uh, Judah into exile. So we're going to come back and look at Manasseh. But um, it's part of the power of this whole passage here is this contrast of kings. It's one king after the other. And you see this incredible pendulum swing from Hezekiah to Manasseh. And then now Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, becomes king at the ripe old age of eight. 
Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath, wherever that is. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And part of his story, as Drew is mentioning, is that he instructs his advisors to restore the temple. It had gone into disrepair. And as they're restoring the temple, they find God's word. They find the Holy Scriptures, the Torah. And he's like, oh, read it to me. And so his advisors read it to him. And he's aware, he's cut to the heart of just how far he and his nation have turned away from God. And so he institutes this radical reformation of the worship of the nations. And like Hezekiah, he goes around and he destroys all of the high places. He reinstitutes Passover, which we become aware that Israelites haven't been celebrating the Passover. They haven't been remembering who God is, that God rescued them from Egypt, from slavery. Uh, this is an interesting little tidbit. I, there's a couple of just little tidbits I want to make sure I highlight. One of them is that Hezekiah, uh, he relies heavily on his advisors, which is, I think, a, a powerful uh, example to us of the, the need we have for community, especially as a young king. And his advisors go and they seek wisdom from Huldah, who's a female prophet. There are not a lot of those in the Old Testament. So it's noteworthy when we encounter a female prophet. Those, this was not a role simply reserved for men. And then uh, at the end of uh, kind of the description of Josiah's reforms, I've got a couple of verses here to read. So furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and the spiritists, the household gods, the idols, all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord and had read to Josiah. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength, in accordance with the law of Moses. Lord, thanks for your word. Uh, and as we dive into these, uh, I think, a little more obscure passages in Second Kings, we want to hear from you this morning. We want to hear your heart for your people. So be our teacher this morning. Fill us with the power of your spirit that as we leave here, we would leave changed. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Okay, so that was a uh, little bit of a, a sporadic uh, jump through a few chapters in 2 Kings, looking at these three different kings, Hezekiah, then Manasseh, and Josiah. And the, the contrast between them, especially when you look at Manasseh as this king who just completely forgot about all of Hezekiah's works and was so desperate to just try everything. Um, I'm reminded of one of the great lines from Augustine who said that you, God, have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest That line describes well for me, I think, the, the contrast between these kings and how they respond to that longing, to that ache that each one of us has for God, for the one who made us. That our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God.
and the one who has made us for himself. So Manasseh is this negative example of someone who searches out every possible thing other than God to fill that longing, to fill that ache. And Hezekiah and Josiah are ones who become for us examples of people who go about seeking God with intention, with purpose. There's, there's direct action that they take in their pursuit of God, in the reformation that Josiah makes in the ways that the people are worshiping and reinstituting the Passover, remembering this feast that God had set up to remind his people who he was and who they were. And as I was thinking about intention, uh, and as I watched, you know, read about how Josiah and Hezekiah go, to about, go about it, the, the phrase resistance and embrace describes well for me, I think, what those, what, what intention looks like. That as Hezekiah and Josiah go about these reformations, they are resisting the influence of the idols and the gods of their neighbors so that they can embrace the one true God who loves them. Resistance and embrace, I think, is how we live life with intention, with purpose. Maybe another way to think of uh, intention is uh, spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. Right? It's these things that we do, uh, things that we're, where we structure our lives so that our lives can be oriented towards God, so that we can remember who God is. Right? We talked about that last week with looking at the life of Esther. Uh, that we, we read the whole story of Esther and we get to the end and, um, and they have instituted a celebration, Purim, that reminds them, that retells the story of God's saving action in their lives. That was a structure, a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline that was part of their yearly rhythm that was orient, or that was the purpose of which was to point them back to Christ or back to God. Another image of, uh, of intention that I've found pretty compelling is this idea of a vine and a trellis, right? So uh, a vine needs a trellis in order to thrive, in order to grow, in order to have life and bear fruit. And I think that there's, uh, I, I sense in myself, and I'm guessing I'm not alone in this, uh, two responses to um, the language of spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, uh, this structure. And one is to just resist it and to say, I'm a, I want to be organic. Right? I want to I live an organic life and have an organic relationship with God and with people, which is noble, but the reality is that organic vines still need trellises on which to grow. <laughs> and, uh, and I think sometimes in our garden, we have some plants that uh, grew simply because of the com whatever was in the compost, right? And we didn't know what was going to grow there, and so we just spread some dirt and then like outgrew a vine, and we had not put a trellis there. We had not put something for it to climb on. Whereas there are some other beans that we planted intentionally, and we created a trellis. We created a, a structure for them to grow on. Uh, and those are the ones that are thriving. The other ones just kind of wither around on the ground, and they're there, but they're not really alive. And so this... Uh, this intention that these kings went about their work with, and this intention that I think you and I have to look at our lives and say, what, what, is, what is in our lives that's purposefully there 
to draw us to Christ, to, to resist the idols that our, our world would constantly throw at us and the idols that are in our heart. Um, there's this great line that uh, I have from, from Tim Keller that our idols are, or our hearts are idol factories, right? Just constantly making idols. So it's, it's both the influence of the world and the influence of our heart that without these structures would constantly be telling us what to worship, what to orient our lives around. So part of this intention is resisting that, saying no to some things, so that we can say yes and embrace God. There are a million and one practical ways to do this. Uh, I'm not going to list them out. I think part of the work that each one of us has to do is to know ourselves and to ask, okay, what are those practices that need to be there in my life, those, those spiritual disciplines, habits, whatever, that allow me to resist the idolatry of my heart and the world so that I can embrace the one who is truly God, who loves me, who approaches me with an embrace. And I just had a couple that I would offer but one of the questions that I hope we leave with this morning is an ongoing question of what, what is the, the trellis? What kind of trellis do I need in my life so that the vine that is this life in Christ can really grow and really bear fruit? Um, I, I trust and hope that this gathering here is part of the trellis of our lives, that coming together in community, remembering that we don't follow Christ alone, um, remembering as we've sung and as we've heard that we're sinful and forgiven. And then every week, coming to this table, encountering the risen Lord, encountering Christ, who embraces us. Randy's famous for saying that these are God's hugs. And I know that's not his original idea either, but I love that image, that the sacraments here are God's embrace of us. And so this gathering becomes part of our trellis, part of our spiritual practice to help us resist idols, and embrace the one true God. Community groups are another, right? The reminder that we, we don't do this alone and that we need another touch point during the week, and we need people who we can pray with. I think this was one of the most powerful experiences for me in college, having, uh, experiencing this intentional community, was having people, being away from home in an unfamiliar place, but having people that I could pray with. That's one of our greatest hopes for community groups. And if you're not a part of a community group, you should be. And if you're not going to be, that's fine. Like I actually, I'll be honest, I don't actually care if you're in a community group or not, but Summer does. <laughs> but here's what I would ask you. Who are the people in your life that you can pray with and pray for? There's a, the community here is a gift. It's so lovely. And to come have s'mores with us tonight and just enjoy the gift of being in community. And I know many of you get together outside of Sunday mornings and you karaoke and you have meals together and you grab coffee. Uh, and it's so good. Um, but I think there is a depth of relationship that God calls us to and that we can offer each other um, that is beyond just enjoying good times together. And I think that's one of the intentional pieces, one of the spiritual practices or trellis, whatever image works for you, uh, 
that could really lead to some incredible growth if we leaned into the reality that we're brothers and sisters in Christ here and the gift that we give each other when we can pray for each other. Yes, enjoy good times together, but also, also, let's pray together. That, that's my question would be, who are the people that you pray with and pray for? The final little spiritual practice is just personally one that I've been trying to do. And if you were to ask Summer, she could tell you uh, truthfully how well I've been doing at it. So don't ask her. Um, but I'm aware of how shaped I am by the stuff that comes to me through my phone, right? My news feed, uh, social media, whatever it is. And uh, I've been trying. My, the resistance part of it is that I have tried to remove my phone from close to my bed. So I plug it in downstairs, away from my bed. And the embrace part of this practice is that I want to root myself in God's story before I am aware of the world story every day. Again, don't ask Summer how well I'm doing at this. But there have been moments of success. And I, I feel the difference in rooting myself first and foremost in God's vision of the world through his scripture, through prayer. So that when I read the news, when I encounter my friends and my neighbors, when I parent my kids, I'm doing so uh, having been rooted in the story of a God who loves this world deeply and who loves me deeply and who forgives me. And it's not an automatic 180, right? It's not that on days when I don't read the Bible before I look at my phone that I'm, you know, evil incarnate, and on days when I do, everything I do is perfect. It's not like that. But I trust, and I think this is how these practices actually work in our life. I trust that over time, as I root myself more and more, first and foremost, in God's story, and secondarily, in the story of the world, in the story of whatever's coming at me through my phone, that I'm going to be able to see the news uh, through this lens that Jesus is on the throne that Jesus is Lord over all. That as I look at Facebook, Twitter, whatever, social media, that I'm going to see my friends uh, not, not with envy, but with love. And that as I parent my kids, I'm going to do that with increased patience and grace. Having rooted myself in the story of a God who loves me, who loves this world, and who loves the people that I'm interacting with have a sense that that love is going to start to shape me and help me resist all of the loves that the world would throw my way and all of the other loves that my heart would create so that I can embrace the one who truly, truly loves me and loves the world. I don't spend a lot of time in Second Kings, so it was kind of fun to read all these chapters. And, um, and I think this contrast between these good kings and these evil kings, uh, and seeing my tendency towards both, right? Um, the, the, the ways in which Manasseh, though he's described as this evil king, actually describes a little bit about how my heart works, about how this longing that I have, uh, I will seek to fill that with anything and everything if I'm not rooted in the story and the truth of the God who loves me so much that he sent his son to the world. I'll leave a little bit of 
space here as we wrap up, and we'll just leave you with two questions. The first is this, can you, can you recognize and, and sense that longing that you have that Augustine mentions? That restless heart, you feel that? Pay attention to that. That's a gift from God. And the second question is, just practically speaking, as you think about your life, what, what structure, what spiritual practice, what trellis, what part of a trellis do you need to, to build in your life to enable you to better resist the idols that the world and your own heart would create and to be able to turn and embrace the God who loves you, who has already turned towards you and embrace? Let's pray as we get ready to come to the table.